Hello and welcome to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. We're talking all things RBs today. I'm Ian Hart. It's talking. Joining me as always, the one, the only Dwayne, the Rock McFarlane, whose voice is sounding a little better today. How are you, Dwayne? I'm doing good. Uh, I, I, I kind of like it. My voice sounds even deeper, like I'm in recovery mode, which <laughs> is really good when you've got to match the guest that you're about to announce, who probably has like some of the best uh, tones in the industry. I love to listen to his voice. So, you know, I'm just trying to keep up with him. A true king. The rookie scouting portfolio at www.mattwaltmanrsp.com has been pleasantly shocking readers since 2006. Football guy, senior staff writer, lover of the saxophone, slapper of the bass, Matt Waldman at Matt Waldman on Twitter. Matt, I mean, you know, us fantasy guys like to pretend to know what we're talking about in football sometimes. You actually can do both, and there is no freaking debating it. Again, truly fantastic stuff in the industry for 15-plus years. How's it going, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Ian, Dwayne, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, big fans of what you guys do, and it's an honor to be able to come on this show and, and talk about one of my favorite positions um, in football. So that should be, should be a good time. Yeah, when Ian and I were going through the list of guests for the different positions, um, you know, obviously, you know, we're going through receiver like as Matt Harmon, you know, we get to running back and we started talking. We're both like, we got to get Matt on like we just have to get Matt on like to talk about these guys. So, hey, we, we, we've got plenty here um, to get to lots it's the of the main guys. event first. It's the main event, Dwayne. We're not holding back. We're not waiting. The guys could be the main event. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is the main event, and especially like this year. Like, I mean, it is every year, but like, man, there are so many names right now, Matt. And, and you know, you've seen them. We've talked about some of them off air, like that are getting pushed up boards. Um, it's crazy, and uh, a, a lot of them are young. People are ready, like they want to be ahead, uh, you know, of the curve. We all want to do that. We're all trying to win our fantasy league, so we'll jump straight in. I don't think there's a better place to start than you know one Isaiah Pacheco. Uh, round seven picks we don't typically see, you know, fly this quickly up draft boards. Um, I guess we could look back uh, to Darwin Thompson. You know, uh, he was an undrafted free agent for the Chief a few years ago, and we saw something kind of similar to this. But uh, you know, he's had a lot of a lot of camp hype, and then in week one, like the Chiefs back it up. We see Clyde Edwards-Helaire out there, and then the next thing we see is Isaiah Pacheco. So. Just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on Pacheco. Like he's basically moved into like a round 12 range now in fantasy drafts, like in sharper drafts at the FFPC. But what are your thoughts on like what he can do? Does he have, do you think he has a chance to overtake CEH? What do you think his role can be? Obviously, people are excited about the Chiefs offense. Yeah, I think everyone's always excited about the Chiefs offense. And I think that there's a lot of comparisons that people make to Brian Westbrook. And let's just get something straight here. Brian Westbrook was a special player. And when you look at Andy Reid's offenses before he came to Kansas City, you have to understand that Brian Westbrook was in a kit committee for most of his career with guys like Deuce Staley and Corral Buckhalter, um, late round guys or mid round guys that Andy Reid kind of cobbled together. And then whether it had to do with injuries um, or, you know, Westbrook eventually carving out that opportunity um, to have some dynamic seasons, that's great. But then you look at, with Reed's teams historically, there was only one Brian Westbrook. And then he caught a guy at the end of his career, at the end of his career in Jamal Charles, who was also just, you know, a Hall of Fame caliber runner in terms of what you watch on film. Maybe not stats, though. I think that'll back it up one day, too. Um, so when you look at Westbrook, the difference between Westbrook and Isaiah Pacheco is that you have to understand that Westbrook has had fantastic vision 
Gil Brandt, the reason I got in this industry was because I, I was listening to Gil Brandt talk about what Brian Westbrook years ago. It was the first article I ever wrote on a player was, was actually Westbrook. And it was one of those situations where he said, listen, if Westbrook were um, 10 pounds heavier and an inch or two taller, he'd be a top five overall pick. Um, but draft capital was a big deal for him because he had two ACL tears. He didn't, he had his scholarship rescinded at FSU and he played at Villanova. So you take all those things that are risk management assets and his, his stock dropped. So when you look at a guy like Pacheco, he doesn't have the vision Westbrook had to begin his career. I think that he, he also at Rutgers dealt with an offensive line that ran a lot of gap plays where you have pulling guards and, and those guards were often slow to get to their spots against better Big Ten and better competition, you know, better teams. And as a result of that, oftentimes Pacheco had to take matters into his own hands to gain yardage, which can often be mistaken is that he doesn't have good vision. I think he has the potential to have good vision, but what you're seeing here is that he's going to have to adjust to NFL offenses and recognize situations where he has to stay the course because the the blocks are a little slower to open, traffic's a little bit tighter, and he's not used to that. When he sees that at Rutgers, he's like, I've got to create on my own. Whereas when he's going to see that in Kansas City, there are opportunities where he's going to have to say, I'm going to have to stay patient with this gap. I have to read the leverage a little bit better. I have to be a little sharper with what I see. Will that develop this year? I would say you don't want to take round 12 odds on that. I would say you probably want to take maybe a few rounds later, 15 or 16, because he's going to be used more like a Travis Etienne or DeAndre Swift in terms of running the ball, which is he's a glorified space player, a receiver who takes draw plays, who takes toss plays, who delays screens, um, any type of play where it's schemed for him to get into space as opposed to him to help set up his blockers to create it. Now, he might get better, and outplay that round 12. But I think Clyde Edwards Hilaire is the guy to own in that, you know, for, for your teams. Whereas, you know, Pacheco is more of a high upside play where if you're getting inside round 15, it may be a little bit more of a vanity pick to say, see, I was right. I picked somebody who's who's cool, who nobody, nobody knew about. Whereas, you know, it might happen and prove true, but the process isn't really there to to do that. I think that's been the big thing that I enjoy poking fun at on Twitter. It's not that I'm out on yeah. Isaiah Pacheco. It's just the extreme hype. Is he going to start going ahead of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire here pretty soon? Like, I feel like we're starting to get to that point. Clearly, once we saw it in the preseason game, you guys can check out Dwayne's top utilization takeaways for every NFL team in preseason week one on PFF.com to see Pacheco come in, rotate with the starters, and just work ahead of Ronald Jones and even Jarek McKinnon. That's fine. But yeah. Round 12 is pretty steep for a guy that we're still expecting to be the clear-cut RB2 at worst. We have no idea if he's going to play on pass downs ahead of Jared McKinnon. And, hey, as amazing as Westbrook was, and my goodness, from 2004 to 2008, PPR per game ranks RB5, RB7, RB4, RB1, RB1. We had Shady, Jamal Charles, Kareem Hunt. Andy Reid's had some fantastic running backs, at least for 2022, Matt. It seems like Clyde Edwards-Alaire is still being set up as that guy. Do you think Clyde... A healthy version of Clyde, who's not weighing 140 pounds after gallbladder surgery or whatever the hell it was he said out there. Is this maybe the year that Clyde gets it done? Because to be fair, I mean, I look at the last two years. Clyde's been the RB21, RB30, and PPR points per game. Hasn't been pretty. 
But why would you force feed the ball to Clyde Edwards Slayer when you have Tyreek Hill on the outside? Could we maybe start seeing some of that receiving upside tapped into from Clyde? Because from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like Pacheco is going to be an immediate threat this year to really take over the pass down work. Yeah, I mean, I think that Pacheco can help you out as a receiver because he has terrific hands. Um, his route game will have to continue to get better. But between the tackles is really where you're going to see the bulk of the the looks for whoever's going to be the lead running back. And while Pacheco has more speed than Edwards Hilaire, and I think he's a better after-contact runner, Edwards Hilaire was always an open-field bully and thought he was quite overrated in the red zone. When people were talking about him being the next Brian Westbrook, Westbrook was far better even as a smaller back. I think um, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is kind of, if you were to say that there's a starter kit, but you have to add like um, enhancements to the player, he was like an Emmett Smith starter kit, which means that he's more on the level of like a higher end Mike Hart, you know, which doesn't sound all that great, but um, <laughs> he has very good decision-making um, between the tackles. He really understands how to set up runs. But he's not going to run over or run through a lot of contact. He'll keep his feet and get a push. But that's why they're looking for, they were looking for Ronald Jones or maybe Derek Gore or Pacheco. And Pacheco gives you all the, all the, pretty much as a raw player, he gives you all what's on that depth chart in one player. It's just that he's not refined yet. And it could, Two months from now, he might he might really pick it up fast and and outplay what we're what I'm talking about here. But I think the odds are low. So when you look at um, you know Clyde Edwards Hilaire, he's probably not going to be a huge factor in the red zone. Um, they're going to find somebody to do that with him, whether it's going to be Gore, Jones, or Pacheco. And then the receiving game again, they're going to spread the ball around a lot, and they have a lot of weapons to do it. So I don't think there's a back in Kansas City who you're going to be taking and going, I'm taking an X round after round five, and he's going to give me round one and round two value. It's just sure. not there. And I just I just refreshed with the last three days, uh, thanks to Fantasy Mojo, who we got to meet out in uh, you know Canton this past weekend. It was cool to meet Darren. But as of the last three days now, listen to this. So Clyde Edwards Alera is now going around seven uh, over in Football Guys Players Championship drafts. Uh, Matt, your own Football Guys Players Championship. And then looking at Pacheco, he's up to round 10 now. His, his ADP is actually in round 10 over the last three days, the last 38 drafts. So sounds like uh, more of an endorsement to take, you know, Edwards Alera in round seven and just kind of chill out maybe on Pacheco. It is the range where all those backup you know, running backs go because you have to start two flexes over in that format. So Isaiah Spiller goes there. Rashad White goes there. Whoever I'm forgetting right now, Drake, like, you know, we've got, we've got all these, you know, rookie backs, you know, so Pacheco's basically moved into the same range with them. So I don't know if that changes anything for you, Matt, you know, if he's just kind of sitting in the same tier as those guys. And if you want to have access to a player like that, does it still make sense? Um, but if not, it's fine. Like we can move on to the next no, guy, but I want to pause a second. Yeah, that's where I'm drafting a quarterback or maybe, a, you know, maybe another wide receiver or, you know, I'm waiting later and going, well, Jamal Williams is never sexy for anybody. But when he's healthy, he he gets a lot of um, production for you to be a flex play. And it may not be a high upside pick, but some of these are a little too high for my taste. Yeah, makes sense. So we'll go to the opposite end of uh, the NFL draft. And we have the first back that went off the board in Brees Hall. Another rookie that obviously fantasy drafters are excited about. And, you know, typically the first one off the board, we all get excited about, um, you know, Ian and I've talked about him a lot. We love the fact that, you know, he was really good in, in all facets of the game in college. That's typically 
from a fantasy perspective, like there's a lot of things we like, but the main thing is, is it someone that we think can be on the field all the time? And, you know, Brees Hall definitely showed that even as a young player, you know, in college, even though he wasn't a huge recruit. Um, so he did that as a freshman and then all the way through, you know, until, you know, he left for the draft. But some drafters are concerned. You know, when you look, it's a round four pick, you know, almost on every format, even even the home leagues like ESPN, Yahoo, Brees Hall is pretty consistent. You know, um, it's and a lot of these, you know, um, ADPs will see differences right between like, you know, some of these high stakes drafts versus what we see in the home leagues. And it, it's, it's the same for Hall. Everybody's taking him in around four. We got week one data point. It's only week one uh, of the NFL preseason, but we've got Michael Carter on the team. He was really good last year, especially in the receiving game. And in week one, with the first team op- with the first team offense, they split it 50-50. So just, you know, what are your thoughts on Hall? Do you see this? And a lot of times with rookies, you know, they start slower and then they finish the season strong. Do you see this being a situation where it's probably 50-50, you know, all year? Or do you think there's a shot that Brees Hall really takes over? Maybe it becomes like a 60-40, 65-35. And then just, you know, your thoughts on Hall uh, in general. Yeah, in general, I'll just say that Hall is a is a better dynasty pick than he is a redraft pick. And that's to be expected, but I would say that it's it's maybe a little more significant than people are rating Brees Hall right now. Yes, the Jets have put together a better um, unit in terms of personnel along their offensive line, but that you still have to get cohesion. And part of that cohesion is whether your quarterback is doing a good job of processing information pre-snap, early post-snap at the line of scrimmage. Joe Flacco will help for the first couple of games, but I'm not a big Zach Wilson fan. And I just look at this team in terms of making the good checks, making good calls, you know, and putting yourself in situations where you can run the ball. And to me, this looks like a passing down offense um, on a regular basis, maybe not to the level that the Detroit Lions had last year. Um, but, I, you know, in terms of game scripts unfolding that are that are favorable for Swift. But I think that you're going to see more Michael Carter than you would expect. And part of that is, is that Brees Hall is makes a lot of things look easy. But there are two areas of his game where maybe statistically it worked out well in college. Um, But when you look at what you're projecting for the NFL and there's some differences there as a pass catcher, he can he has some issues with his hand positions that that oftentimes may lead to still decent stats for him. But when you project to the to the next level and coverage is tighter, the ball's arriving quicker, um, you're having to think more about your coverage. If you don't have your hands in the right positions, you drop more passes. And that showed up in late game situations with um, Brees Hall multiple times where he dropped passes that he should have caught. Um, and then as a pass protector, I would say he was a little bit more on the on the edge of where Jonathan Taylor used to be, who was you know obviously a terrific prospect. Um, and he can correct those things. But when you look at Taylor and, and Hall, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm, I guess pass protection is something I have to do. How do I intelligently look like I'm doing that well when we all know if we're going to look at it on film, I'm just playing to the, you know, I'm gaming the system, you know, as opposed to actually doing the work at the level that I should. So Michael Carter is a good pass protector. He's not. He doesn't have the upside Hall has due to his lack of size, but he gets into position well, and he was arguably the best receiver in that draft class last year, and and he's a good interior runner. If anything, if I if we just talked about Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, if Michael Carter were in Kansas City, I would be much higher 
on my on on the Kansas City running back, and I would be drafting him inside of round five um, based on ability. Um, so when you take a look at this scenario, I think it's more 50-50, mainly because of game scripts, Carter skills, and where Hall has to develop a little bit more. And when you look at what you can get in round four, especially, say, in home leagues, and you look at some of the wide receivers that you can get, even though maybe – you know, T Higgins is second banana and maybe he goes a little higher in some leagues. Um, it, you know, you can still probably get him at the top of round four. You look at guys like Brandon cooks, who's always reliable. And Davis Mills is a little bit of an underrated guy. You're getting safe picks. I like safe picks in the first five rounds because people say, well, you win your league on upside picks at the end, but you don't lose your leagues by taking safe picks mm-hmm. rather than getting guys that you go, oh, Brees Hall could be Ladanian Tomlinson. <laughs> yeah, maybe in a couple of years, maybe he can have a season like that, but not right now. It, it is interesting to me how the certain rookie running backs are getting lauded for their success in these advanced metrics that Michael Carter is also finishing up the top, and we just kind of ignore his inclusion there. Javante Williams broke, I think, 0.01 more tackles per touch than Michael Carter did last season. The Kenneth Gainwell targets per route run stats. Michael Carter is popping in those too. But I, I think your point, though, just about the 50-50 split, like – even if it's a little more than that, I just don't see really the path to Hall getting to 80% plus this year. And a lot of people seem to be assuming that. I did a uh, study this offseason just looking at all the play callers and what percentage of their games did they give a running back? 60% snaps, 75%, 90%, just you know, one game, so that would happen. The only three offenses to not even feature a running back for 75% of the snaps in any game the entire season or their entire tenure with that team, Michael, Michael Floor with the Jets, Greg Roman with the Ravens, and Pep Hamilton with the Texans. So it's what history tells us now. We can argue he's never had a running back like Brees Hall out there. But Matt, like, do you think we kind of overrate some of these gaudy missed tackle statistics with guys like uh, like Devontae Williams, like Tony Pollard and stuff? Because it's, it's sexy. I love watching it. But style points don't matter in fantasy football. And just part of me wonders, man, like, what's really better? Like, when Melvin Gordon, the play's supposed to go in the B-gap, and he hits the B-gap, and he gains four yards, or when Javante Williams bounces outside and breaks three tackles on his way to getting four yards. I feel like part of the coach's mindset's like, they want the plays to happen on the field as they're designing them to happen. Yeah, because the problem is, is that part of good vision is game management. And it's a part of processing information. Oftentimes people look at running backs and they see the physical ability, they see the jump cuts, they love the speed, and they get enamored with all those highlight caliber plays. But there was a reason why Frank Gore frustrated fantasy owners for many years and played in the league for so long. It was because when a play was designed to get four yards, he could get four yards. And I remember, you know, I showed a play at my site at mattwaldmanrsp.com where I talked about what would Frank Gore do. And I showed a play of like Anthony McFarland where you know, Anthony McFarland probably had some high missed tackle rate stats um, in college and watching when the Steelers run a play. And I thought, I wonder what Frank Gore would do in that situation. See if I can find something. And I kid you not, I, the next, I pull up the first play of a game was against the chargers. Same exact situation gains 15 yards on the play where McFarland loses yardage because again, it's about efficiency of footwork, understanding down and distance situations and knowing when you should take a chance and when you shouldn't. When you take a look at Brees Hall, he's kind of a mix to me. If I were to do player comparisons between a guy, we talked about LaShawn McCoy and Matt Forte. When he channels more of the Matt Forte in his game, he's a very disciplined player who's quite versatile and can be a high-end star. 
he when he's a little bit more early LaShawn McCoy, that's when you start to have those situations where you have a second and four. He tries to bust a 70-yard run on a play where he had an option to really just get the hard three and make it third and one, and now it's third and seven um, because of what he tried to do. And that's the situation that you kind of get worried about with him. And so with the Jets, with a, a quarterback who still has a lot to prove in Zach Wilson and is now missing training camp time because of his knee, and Joe Flacco, whenever he's in, they seem to play a little bit better, which is interesting in its own right. Are they going to be in situations when Zach Wilson comes back and it's going to take even more games for Wilson to get acclimated and he'd be a little rustier? And now the game scripts are flipped in the favor of Michael Carter. So that's, you know, that's part of that whole thing. Well, kind of hitting, I mean, we already started talking about Javante, so we might as well keep on. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I had a really smooth transition there. I was going Carter's former UNC teammate, but we've already started talking about Javante. Um, so Ian already mentioned it and mentioned it, you know, the, the way he pops and the missed tackles force, the yards after contact. You kind of touched on some of that there. Um, and the fact that really what we're looking for, you know, is and what the coaches are looking for anyway, right, are the backs that can just do what they're being asked to do. But, you know, looking at Javante, he's going in the middle of the second round right now, fantasy drafts. We have Melvin Gordon back on the team. Yes, the team did basically ice Melvin Gordon. They basically let Melvin Gordon go test the market and said, look, go on, go ahead. Like, But you're probably not going to get anything, and then when you don't, like, we'll re-sign you. And that's what happened. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Melvin Gordon is back, and Melvin Gordon was a good running back last year as well. It wasn't just Javante. You know, I, I'm taking Javante a lot. You know, in the second, especially when he slips into the third round, because I do, you know, believe that the upside is elite with Russell Wilson there, you know, as the quarterback, even if he just gets to 60%, right, of the work, I think Javante can pay off his round two price tag. And then if he goes higher than that, right, you have potentially a top three back in the league. So I feel like, you know, the range of outcomes is nice, but want to get your thoughts on it. And then while you're talking about it, just kind of rehitting on this thing with vision, um, you know, do we see players improve with vision? Because like my other argument, I do have some people, oh, Javante can't read. You know, he's breaking outside. Yeah, he breaks five tackles, you know, and he gets seven yards, but he should have just hit the hole and got 15. But to me, it's like, okay, well, if you're really good in college, you're Javante Williams and you can take it to the corner store, right? And you can get around, you know, the, your your peers in college. It doesn't does I don't know that it always means you have bad vision, right? It also could just be you're adapting to life in the NFL, right? You, you were used to being able to do things you could. Now you can't. You're having to unlearn some of your bad habits. So just your thoughts around Javante, but also just, you know, do we see players' vision, you know, improve? Because we give them credit in a lot of other areas of saying, oh, well, they're going to get better at pass protection. They're going to get better at this and that. But a lot of times when I hear people talk about vision, we act like it's like this you know, thing that's just, you know, we've drawn a line in the sand, you can't cross it. You don't have good vision. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But that's what it feels like. Anytime I hear someone talk about vision, it's like, oh, it's something a running back can't get better at. So I know you spend a lot of time thinking about hard fix versus easy fix and the RSP, one of the really cool features that I love about it. So why don't you let the folks know what you think about vision and obviously Javante. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing with vision is a lot of people approach vision with this baseline idea that it's instinct. And the difference is, is that it's not as much instinct as people think it's playing to the speed of instinct and there's a subtle difference but it's very important and i often use music as the analogy for it because if you're playing music whether it's music or learning lines as an actor learning techniques in terms of how, or just learning language you know we don't come out of our mother's womb just speaking 
You know, we have to learn words. We I, have think to learn I think hardest. I think hardest. Maybe did. hardest. Did. Okay, <laughs> he's one, he's the Bo Jackson of like of, of of people with language. Okay, but really, when it comes down to it, you learn all these different structures and and phrases, and you learn how to put things together. But you have to practice it, and you have to learn it in different scenarios, and you drill it. You know, even as a little kid, you may not thinking you're drilling language like a guy running through cones. But at the same time, you're talking to your parents. They're talking back to you. You're talking to your siblings, and they correct you sometimes, or they will, or the responses you get are corrections to what it is that you thought you asked for or thought you said. So you you start to learn that way. With running back plays, the same thing is that there are situations where, like, say, bouncing plays outside when you should stick to the the blocking scheme inside. You made a perfect point about that, Dwayne, is that, um, yeah, oftentimes it's because they're more athletic and they can do it and make the big play. And in the NFL, if they figure out, well, guys like LaShawn McCoy used to do that. Jamal Charles used to do it, got better at it. Adrian Peterson used to do it, got better at being disciplined. Those are all guys who are examples of players who understood or who figured out that sometimes I'm not faster than everybody else, or sometimes it's better for me to take it inside because I'm going to keep our playbook open and they figure that out. Then there's players like CJ Spiller and Lawrence Maroney and Darren McFadden who just never figured that out. And so it's kind of a 50-50 thing with some of these players. Some keys that I would say for people to look for with those players is that if they if they play in a zone scheme and they've had success playing in a zone scheme before, even if they occasionally bounce plays outside, um, if they show that their ability to get downhill and attack defenders, it doesn't mean they have to run them over like Jamal Charles. He could do a good job of being the first to deliver a hit and then spin off it and barely have any real contact. But he, because he initiated that contact first, he put the defender in a situation where they had to react to it. And then he could set kind of dictate terms. Um, LaShawn McCoy was very good at that. But if you can get downhill and attack, whether it's Leonard Fournette running through you or Adrian Peterson, or whether it's those scat back type of guys who could be still be feature backs, if you're showing the ability to do that in college, most likely you're going to be able to make that correction. But if you weren't someone who really ran hard through contact, like a Spiller um, or a McFadden who could run 15 yards downhill try to drop his pads but didn't have good pad level and literally bounce off a flat-footed safety who was just waiting for him. Probably those are guys that more or less relied so much on speed that their interior running didn't improve. So those are some things that I would look for in terms of compare and contrast with types of players for that. It can get better. And when you look at Javante Williams, really, I think his vision's fine. He may not have elite vision in terms of certain types of plays where maybe the penetration reaches the backfield or he reads the he reads the um, alignments pre-snap unbelievably well and finds a solution like say Nick Chubb does and creates you know cre- basically helps his blockers when his blockers fail with some of the things that Chubb does Williams isn't quite there but he can run gap he can run zone schemes he's versatile in the ways to approach both because they're kind of opposite in how you approach them and like you said, he's a tackle breaker. He's a good athlete. Um, to me, he's a faster version of Mark Ingram with maybe slightly less um, decision-making, high-end decision-making traits that Ingram had. And Ingram, you look at and go, oh, well, he was never the great player that you thought he'd be out of Alabama. But he had multiple top 10 seasons 
in the league when he had a good offense around him and a strong quarterback. And that's what that's what the Denver Broncos have right now. So to me, he's a, you know, somewhere he may be drafting them in round two if he falls to round three. And you're probably getting a guy at or slightly above his value. And I'm good with that. Matt, the player comps you've just been throwing out since we started have been incredible. McFadden, Spiller, Mike. You mentioned Mike Hart earlier, you know, man. I got, I got Troy Hambrick and Corey Dillon left to complete the bingo card. So keep it going, <laughs> keep it going, my brothers. So I want to talk about another running back where we've uh, and, and shout out. I I love Hayden Winks over Underdog Fantasy. He correctly pointed out, but ETN. Sure looked like the play was supposed to go in the B-gap. The B-gap was open. ETN bounces outside and has to deal with like four unblocked defenders. With that said, the usage looked pretty damn good out there. Like he truly wasn't every down back with the starters. Now, James Robinson wasn't in the picture. With this Achilles injury, though, we don't exactly know what version of James Robinson we're going to be getting in week one anyway. So what are your overall thoughts on ETM, Matt? Because he does seem to have, you know, the explosive ability and the pass-catching chops that we do really want to target, particularly when he's falling into late third or even fourth round uh, sometimes. I think particularly in home leagues, you can get him in the fourth round. Do you have enough concerns about ETN's just kind of pure rusher ability to fade him at this point? Or do you think he's okay enough and maybe we're just overreacting to one preseason run a little bit too much? Yeah, I mean, let's remember that he hasn't played football in 12 months. And even with training camp, this is a good thing to remember about running back play. And, and a good lesson for it is that most coaches will tell you they don't really know what they have in the running back until they see live action with that player. And it, it it goes back a, a very long time ago. You can look at players like Isaiah Crowell, who may never have become a special um, football player, but he was a guy who was an undrafted free agent, Deion Lewis. And I'm trying to remember the kid out of um, Towson who was supposed to be, um, these guys were supposed to be the starters for Cleveland. And, and Crowell was supposed to be basically an afterthought. He was going to be cut. Not, no, not Tate. Uh, that was out of Auburn, but good. That's a good reference of a guy. Too. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he ended up showing up late in a preseason game because of a Deion Lewis injury. Deion Lewis broke his leg and wound up the starter that year, a co-starter, and then ended up becoming a, a stalwart for a, a poor Browns team, but showed that he could be a decent runner before an Achilles injury basically wrecked his career when he had a chance to, re, you know, have a chance with the Raiders um, a few years ago. And when you look at players, even like Kyle Shanahan will say, we don't really know what we have until we get them into the playing situations because all that theory of how you read gaps, how you look at leverage, how you react and process all that information. That's one of the most important things about running back plays that the closer you get to the line of scrimmage or into the middle of the field, actually, the more, the better you have to be as a processor of information. That's something that NFL GMs are discovering. I know that um, Rick Spielman talked about that former GM for the Vikings on a podcast with Robert Mays at The Athletic saying that this was something that they valued and they realized more and more teams are valuing it and they're figuring out that running backs need to process information as at high of a level as you know, you're looking at interior linemen and even quarterbacks in many situations. So when you look at a guy like ETN who hasn't played in a year, you know, you look at one run and if you damn him for one run, you're like, well, the guy's got to be a little rusty at processing information. It's not like he's been, right. you know, working out at this for the past year. He's been rehabbing an injury. That said, 
To me, he's a little better than what Marlon Mack was early in Marlon Mack's career as a processor, which wasn't all that great. Um, and slightly not as good as Reggie Bush, who also struggled um, you know, early in his career trying to bounce things outside. So I wouldn't expect ETN to be a guy. I would say ETN, if you're expecting him to be take over for James Robinson and be like a higher-end receiver, you're probably mistaken. So I wouldn't go for him above round four. But at round four, I think he can play to that value due to the game scripts of what the Jaguars are going to um, be facing and and the fact that they'll be able to supplement Etienne between the tackles with either um, Robinson if he's healthy or even Snoop Connor, who may not be exciting, but the rookie out of Ole Miss understands how to run between the tackles in a way where you know Etienne um, may sometimes try too hard to make the big play. And they're going to have a lot of schemed plays to Etienne where all the resources are generated to try and get Etienne out, Etienne out into space. So while I think Etienne maybe one day, if he, if he works hard enough at his decision-making and can show, you know, improvement over the next couple of years, maybe he gets into that Reggie Bush, Clinton Portis territory as a player, but it's not going to happen this year. I think he's more of a high end Marlon Mack, um, which tells you that there's going to be the need for another player in that offense to supplement him and supplement him enough that expecting um, DeAndre Swift like play, it's possible, but I think that the receiving the the receivers in Jacksonville this year are better than what the dearth of receiving talent they had in Detroit had last year. And so as a result of that, game scripts might be similar, but you may see um, a little bit better of a receiving game. That means that ETN won't have as high of a ceiling as Swift had. So uh, another guy, you, you mentioned the receiving game there that's moving up draft boards, and it's because of that exact reason. Um, it's Ramondre Stevenson. So we've got a lot of folks that you know, believe that Ramondre Stevenson is going to take over that passing down role. Maybe that, you know, the James White role, we heard the stories all off season, right. That he's working on his passing game. You know, it's coming from Ramondre Stevenson, you know, himself, but at the end of the day, like we're still seeing, you know, Ty Montgomery, like come out there in the pre, you know, or not in the preseason, but come out there in practice reports. Right. And he's handling a lot of the two minute offense. We're hearing about Montgomery being involved, you know, and passing it, you know, uh, pass targets down the field, all those sort of things. And we know that the Patriots have really always, had this running back by committee. You know, a lot of times we'll talk about coaching tendencies and things like that. And Ian mentioned it earlier, like sometimes just because you got to go back far enough and be like, well, wow, they never really had a superstar running back. Um, you know, but with the Patriots, it hasn't really mattered. Like they've always basically wanted to have three guys involved. They've got, and, and maybe it's to do because they know running backs get injured so much, right? And they just want to be able to fill in these niche little pockets, right, of what they want a running back to do. And they put three together to make one. And then they don't have to worry about an injury killing their season. I don't know. That's just a, that's just a hypothesis on my part. But at the end of the day, like the question is, Ramondre Stevenson now up to round seven. He now goes two rounds ahead of Damian Harris, which the last time I checked is still the starting running back, you know, for, you know, the Patriots going to have the same struggles, right? He's not going to be an every down back either, but he's going to get the high leverage stuff inside the five, going to get those touchdowns. Stevenson, for him to pay off in round seven, like he has to have the passing down role, right? And if he does, he could. We've seen James White pay off an ADP like that in the past. My question is, do you see Stevenson as really being a back that could be like that or that could even potentially break this committee mold um, that we've seen for so long, you know, in New England. I love Ramondre Stevenson as a prospect and player. Um, I he had he has soft hands. 
He is very skilled at tracking the football. He has terrific feet. And before, when we're talking about big Ramondre Stevenson, like, you know, Lendale White-esque Ramondre Stevenson, he could run over some D1 defensive tackles literally head on. And bingo. I think I have Lendell White on my card. You <laughs> see, there you, there you go. There you go. But when you have, you know, there was, but now he's a much more felt version of that, probably quicker. And he was still quick enough to be able to get the corner on some SEC um, defensive linemen and linebackers at Oklahoma. I mean, he's a very skilled runner who I thought had, you know, now this is the difference between pass pro passing downs um in the nfl and in college i thought he was the best pass protector of his class in terms of what who he could handle where he could get positioned and the fact that he could use his hands well to strike now a big part of pass protection that happens in the nfl that they have to get better at and that usually coaches are talking about without saying it specifically is reading blitzes being on the same page with your offensive line with calls and knowing the know, knowing all the mental part of the game that that supersedes the physical part because oftentimes people go well he doesn't look like he's punching there and it's like because he's two steps late um, figuring out what he had to do you know and he hasn't gotten to the point of doing just the physical skill yet when it comes to the when it comes to this offense I loved um Ramondre Stevenson is more the Legarrant blunt I used to get after round 10 and get free money from him as a as a fantasy back because people always wrote him off and you could get him you know you could get him round 10 round 12 round 15 and get yourself a top 15 back um even in a committee situation Stevenson will play the blunt role which will be they'll be designed they'll be designed plays for him on screens and leaks out of the backfield um, outside of the the two-minute situations. He'll probably get more looks in the red zone, and he'll probably get to um, split time with Damian Harris. But round seven, that's kind of the ceiling of where I think you want to take him right now without injuries, without really understanding how this is all going to shake out. So, yeah, it's a little high for me, too, as much as I love him as a player, because ability-wise, I think he could be the best running back on this team, and I think he could be a top 10 running back in the league. But you also are looking at outside. They're running more outside zone. You have the changes in terms of the scheme. Um, you have a second-year quarterback. And while maybe Damian Harris has some work to do with running outside zone and maybe the fact that Stevenson has basically come in in great shape and he's you obviously see see a guy who was 250 260 to begin his career at Oklahoma and he's and he was a 2000 yard rusher as a juco player so you can see the work ethic in his game is all the way there i mean to go from that to what he looks like right now i mean he's like what in 220 range right now i think and bill belichick by the way yesterday i was either yesterday or today praised Ramondre Stevenson for his work in the passing game. So it isn't just Ramondre at this point now. Um, but that said, what you said about Ty Montgomery is, is probably true. So from this perspective, Stevenson, if he can drop after round seven and you get him, go for it. But if if he's going, if he's going above Damian Harris right now, um, it's kind of that Isaiah Pacheco, I was right vanity pick for a sharp league. <laughs> 
It's interesting that you said the Blount role because, like, I think Damian Harris is in the Blount role, right? I, I, I feel like Ramondre Stevenson's more in the Rex Burkhead role, right? It's the the jack of all trades, right? He can play in the passing game. He could also step in, handle stuff inside the five. So th that opened my eyes. I thought that was interesting. If we really think that he could take over that kind of role from Harris or at least carve out some of it, um, maybe that's something I wasn't calculating into his upside um, because we, we saw it in the in the um, passing game stats last year, like his targets per route run. Those things were all nice. So I thought that was interesting. Cool. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the guys I compared him to back in the day, you know, is was was LeGarrette Blunt. And everybody always always thought about Blunt when he was with the Eagles as his plotter. Um, but he was such a quick footed back with terrific vision and i and damon harris to me is that guy that's like um damon harris is like he's on that border where he's just above just a guy you know as a starter you know like he if you think nfl starter mason dixon line that's where that's where he is he's the mason dixon line for nfl starter in ability and in almost every facet of the game like above that you're you're above average well, Below I know you that, said you no here, Matt, here. but I'm I'm feeling like I may want to take Ramondre Stevenson in round seven now. <laughs> to you. Yeah, I, I mean, know. I was I was going to yeah, say real quick, guys, like we have we remember the Legarrette Blunt year where he scored the 18 touchdowns, and last year Damon Harris scored 15 touchdowns. But if we're playing full PPR, which I'm on the record, I don't think it's the best scoring system to just translate real life football success into fantasy football success, like. Blunt in 2016 was the RB 15 PPR points per game. Damon Harris was the RB 20 last year. Like the two highest scoring Patriots running backs on a per game basis were 2018 James White, the RB nine and 2013 Shane Vereen as the RB eight. Like if Ty Montgomery is going to be stealing the pass down snaps, I just think it could be a situation where the answer is no. Yes. And, th and that's probably the best answer inside of round 10 yeah. Um, it, because the, I have them pretty much even on my rankings right now at football guys is that Harris is slightly above Stevenson. And then at that point, you know, I start looking at that and I go, well, who are other players that I'm interested in? Because uh, it, it, at this stage, I like Stevenson more ability wise. I like Harris in terms of what his role and proven nature has been. All right, Matt, we got a we got co-main event now. We let off with Isaiah Pacheco, obviously, but my guy, Cordero, <laughs> Cordero Patterson. Now, you look at the things he was able to do last year. First ever season, getting over 100 offensive touches in the regular season. Weeks one through nine, RB7 overall, RB6 per game and full PPR scoring. Sprains his ankle against the Cowboys, comes back shortly after. Disappoints down the stretch. Still, though, the RB20 overall, RB31 on a per-game basis from weeks 12 to 18. Now, new offense, you know, Matt Ryan anymore. It is a downgrade to Marcus Mariota. And we got to wonder if, you know, fifth rounder, Tyler Algier, Damian Williams could maybe mix things up a little bit. But Mike Davis had almost 200 carries and targets in his own right last year. There's still plenty of meat on the bone for Cordero Patterson. I have a question coming. I'm just, I got another about five minutes of me just hyping up CPAT here. But all right, Matt. So CPAT, he is 31, but admittedly far less, you know, far less work on the tires. I mean, Jonathan Taylor has more regular season career touches than Patterson already at this point. Do you think last year was a complete fluke with Cordero or can he continue to just be probably like a better fantasy running back than real life talent? Thanks to that pass catching ability. No. And in the famous lines of Samuel L. Jackson, I'd do it again when it comes yeah. to Cordero Patterson. Um, but basically the, <laughs> the, the reason being is this, 
I don't know about you guys, and you might be able to tell me more, you know, with your expertise of looking at things from a broad perspective. And but Arthur Smith doesn't strike me as the guy who's like beers from his peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day at the lunch table. Okay. <laughs> and and the way that Arthur Smith likes to do things is last year it looked like to me that the gap plays went to Cordero Patterson. Anything with a pulling guard, a toss play, anything where you said, we're going to marshal our resources to one hole and let's use your speed and tackle breaking ability to just get downhill and hit it. Whereas with Mike Davis, they said, let's run zone because we know you can set up blocks. We know that you can use your footwork to create and then we'll split you guys both in the passing attack, but we're going to use Cordero more um, as a receiver in a lot of respects or in the red zone where he can get open and, and do some selected things very well as a former receiver. And what we found out is that Atlanta wasn't very good at zone blocking, but they were better at, at gap blocking based on just what we saw with the results of these two running backs. Now, when we look at it this year, Mike Davis is gone. Damian Williams, the only reason he's gone is because Khalil Herbert outplayed him and he was a high-end free agent for at least you know what the Bears thought they were going to get out of him. And he's a good pass protector. He can run zone. He's 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 a little better at gap, too, because he's a fast player and he had to work at becoming a good zone player, but he's competent at it. Tyler Algier played zone, but I thought he'd be a better gap player based on what I watched with him or Al Geyer at, uh, at BYU, where because I thought his ability to track angles was substandard. I And this is kind of a subtle thing with him, but as a pass protector and as a runner, he seemed to, when he saw an open defender pursuing him he seemed to misgauge what he could or couldn't do against them on enough of a consistent basis that while i know there's some people i really respect in the draft game who love him i, I just can't get with him at all so he, it, now in a gap scheme i think where he doesn't have to make these cutbacks and set up defenders as much he can be pretty good so i see al or algier however he's pronounced i, I apologize come I on Dwayne, so many players this is not this is not the podcast to get your pronunciation straight which is Dw supposed to right lead now. this come yeah. on, it's, it's algier but you know hey we, we how long did we mess up oquibunum you know finally someone just made us get it right see there you go so he i think he's i think we look at this and it's still going to be between you know, you're going to see a situation where these reserves are going to be more in a situational role. And I look at Cordero Patterson and what he did. He was coming out of school. I thought he was one of the two to three best open field runners I had ever seen at any position, period, in studying them for 17, past 17 years. And um, as a gap player, I mean, Bill Belichick had it right. They, he He promised that he was going to make Cordero Patterson a thing and figure it out to him when he signed him. It didn't work perfectly in New England um, because I felt they probably felt like we we couldn't get him to do anything more than run um, zone or run gap. But Atlanta, it seems to have worked out there. And because they're going to be playing in a lot of game scripts where they are behind and can't run as consistently as you would like because they can't be as diverse of a run game as you would like to see with that offensive line. Um, they're going to be chipping that and they're going to be checking that ball down a lot to Cordero as well. So for me, I keep looking at everyone's, you know, passing on him and I'm thinking that's, that's free money for me too. I mean, like I'll take him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're with you.
<laughs> and, and it's round eight. Like even even in you know these leagues where people pay a lot of money to play, and they're drafting all the time, they're letting Patterson fall to round eight. Like I mean, you know, give me Patterson in round eight. You know, over a lot of the guys that are going like in round six. And um, guess who you can take in round seven instead of that whole mess in New England? You know, you think of guys like Tyler Lockett, or you can take your chance on if you want to take another running back. Why not Kareem Hunt? Yes, if he gets yeah, traded, we love Kareem Hunt. If he gets traded. He's going to be the top back. If if Chubb gets hurt, he's going to be a top 12 back. If nothing of those happens, he's going to be a top 15 to top 20 back. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have the, one of the best offensive lines in the league. Why would you take – Why you know, you're trying to – that's, again, that whole thing about safety versus upside where a lot of these backs we're talking about are upside guys while someone, you know, it's like, yeah, you can get that special tool that might do these five things unbelievably well, but all you really need to do is hang drywall and you just need these two tools, you know, and and just get a good quality thing like that. And Cream Hunt is like that, whereas opposed to you're trying to buy something off late night TV. Yeah, we're all in on Hunt with you. Like, and we've talked about it. Like some of the, t- like if for some reason, right, he was traded to Buffalo. Like we're not saying the Bills are going to do that, but like he would just take over the whole thing. Like Devin Singletary, and as much as we love James Cook on this show, like yeah. it wouldn't goodbye. Matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kareem Hunt is so freaking good, and people don't give him enough credit. So, well, a- another player that people actually want to give all the credit in the world to, um, you know, is Tony Pollard, and and his underlying, you know, data is great, right? It's it is a small sample size, you know, he is out there a lot, right? Whenever the defense isn't expecting a really a running play, which is very different than what you're going to face if you're Ezekiel Elliott, you know, trying to live life as a cowboy. Um, but at the end of the day, like these you know, the data and the metrics, like people run with it. And there is, and Pollard does have pop, right? He has upside, but right now, like there's a guy that sneaks into round six of drafts. You're going to, you're going to have to pay a round seven option uh, around seven, you know, draft pick on average to get your hands around Pollard. Um, so just what are your thoughts on Pollard? You know, one like upside, like if Zeke did go down, like are people really going to get what they expect from Pollard? But really the bigger question, number two is, if Zeke doesn't go down, right? And Zeke, let's face it, has been pretty healthy. Last year's the first year he's really been, you know, had any kind of injury that actually slowed him down. I mean, and, and he takes very good care of himself. The Cowboys are seem very committed, right, to Zeke. So I think the question for Pollard has to be, can he carve out more in the passing game? You know, what is his path to upside? And, and even then, like, is it going to be worth, especially like a round six pick? Um, or is this something where you think people are just getting carried away with the upside conversation, which apparently like is the case with all the backs we're talking about today <laughs> is that we're just too high on them. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's, there's also right supply and demand pushes these things up. Like it, as much as we may say, well, it may not be worth this round. I mean, some of it's dictated by look, if you don't take backs, they're just all going to be gone and then you're screwed anyway. So um, what are your thoughts on Pollard? Listen, I, I appreciate Pollard's upside as, as a player who could potentially become an every down back or a lead back in a committee. Um, because when you do watch him run, he has great burst. You know, that acceleration is important. He seems to have good footwork in terms of being able to process information when it comes to um, certain types of traffic. Um, but at the same time, when you watch him, you know, when you watch the Cowboys and you say, when the teams, when the defense says, we're going to stack the box seven or eight. And we're and we're gonna run blitz or we're gonna do anything to try and stop the run in a situation where we know you're gonna run the ball. You know, Elliot's the guy. And to me, you mentioned him Ian, earlier in the show. If there's a guy who's kind of getting underappreciated on a level of like say Corey Dillon did during yeah. his career um with the Bengals, um, it's Ezekiel Elliott. Um, so 
I look at the scenario and Pollard was like Antonio Gibson. They were athletes playing a hybrid running back receiver type of role for Memphis. And the until we see Pollard in situations where he has to process information as well as Ezekiel Elliott with the level of difficulty of scenarios that Elliott faces, it's it, to me, I'm looking at a guy behind him who's been on that roster for three years who will be supplementing Tony Pollard on a regular basis as long as he can stay healthy, and that's Rico Dowdle out of South Carolina. And he may not become a fantasy thing on the level that Pollard did. You know, He won't become like Elliot to Pollard, but he would supplement enough if Ezekiel Elliott got hurt that I look at Pollard's value and I just think it's a little too high. I, I, I just look at it and people, you know, whether it's film or stats, you know, whether they look at somebody's speed or they look at a highlight or they look at a couple of stats that are valuable, but maybe a layer in the whole thing, just like looking at speed as a layer of all thing. They look at Pollard and they go, that's the magic pill. That could be it. And, you know, and they turn analysis into magic and wind up getting a little bit too, um, you know, a little bit too high on it. And again, Jared Jones, whether we like him or not, whether we think he should be in the room in certain situations, whatever's going on with him, you know, you know that Jerry Jones is going to basically throw his weight around with what he wants. And when he says Ezekiel Elliott's a very important part of what we do, and you have an injured James Washington, an injured Michael Gallup, a rookie in Tolbert, they're going to run this ball. They're going to try and limit how much they throw this ball because they have a decent enough promise with their defense that they're going to try and do that. And I think that means that Elliott could wind up being a top five back this year at a you know in the situation where people are drafting him in rounds two, maybe even falling further than that in certain situations. Um, and people are so down on him. And I think Pollard, to me, you're asking him to to do things like um read the defense in the same way pre-snap and be a high-end slot receiver. And last I remember guys who played that tweener role like Tavon Austin didn't quite work out all that well to me. You, you know, being more in the slot means the last guy that was like really good at that was, you know, that was not a full-time back like Austin Eckler was Danny Woodhead, you, you know, and I just don't see Tony Pollard being Danny Woodhead. I see him being more of a high-end gadget. And as I always tell my, my readers, gadgets get lost in the TV, in the cushions of your couch. Um, and, and you don't want that with fantasy. It is insane that if Zeke never took another carry, he'd probably be already be the number three Cowboys running back ever. Like, yeah, Emmett and Tony Dorsett, give them their due. Don Perkins, Calvin Hill, okay. Like, there's a couple older guys, but Zeke is already firmly in that conversation. You know, it, it, it goes, Matt, like, it just annoys me that we can't talk about good running back play. And you, you haven't brought up, like, a salary or contract once, and God bless you for that because, man, it just bugs me with Zeke where anything he does, he has a good game, and the reaction is, oh, about time. Look at the contract. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, you know. Can yeah. we just accept the guy's getting paid? Good for him. That's And that's just human nature, you know. That's how it works. And that's why I don't even worry about contract with any of that stuff because it's like, what does he do on the field? And he – frequently turns lemons into lemonade in situations that people just don't appreciate about good running back play um, to the level that they, that they, it's hard to do when you just look at an isolated trait 
or an isolated um, stat. You know, it all works together very well. And when you look at Elliot on that level, I mean, I talk to guys in the league occasionally, and they'll and when I bring up Zeke and or they read something that I've written about Zeke, I'll, I'll hear from them, and they and that's usually appreciation, like thank you, um, because some of the things that I look at tend to t- tend to show the same stuff that people overlook. You, so, you and Jay Moyer are the voices in the wilderness. We are, we are fighting <laughs> the battle for and Zeke, I and I do, like I do, I've been I do appreciate for it. a long time today. So you know, so I don't. I was trying to imitate my hair earlier in the show to be like Dwayne, <laughs> but I, I'm just lucky to have hair at this point, you know? Yeah. You have wisdom. You have wisdom beyond me. So you're good. Um, so we got about five minutes, Matt. So we're going to hit some rapid. We got three questions. We're going to hit rapid we fire here. So this, this next one, I'm just going to make it super short, but we saw week one of the preseason, a lot of the rookies that everybody likes that are going around 10, 11, 12, Isaiah Spiller, Rashad white, Tyrion Davis price. None of them played until, uh, they were they're right now probably the third maybe some some of these guys might be the fourth back on their rosters um so any quick thoughts on which ones you think are most likely to still be able to send it's only week one of the preseason we can't overreact but if you have one you like if there's one that you think definitely you just wouldn't touch this year in fantasy go i'm not touching rashad white because as good of a receiver as he is he he tries to run away from open creases where he has a one-on-one with somebody that he should attack and he's in a small crease situation with duo a lot of small creases in that type of offense he's not good in small creases he's a bouncer in terms of that down the line spiller to me i like i always like joshua kelly as a prospect but it hasn't worked out for him he's in the lead right now but i think spiller can gain on him very good footwork. I think he's pretty good. And then um, who was the third guy? We Tyrion Davis-Price. Tyrion Davis-Price. Man, there's some clinic tape. You can talk Trey Sermon. Protector. It is allowed, Matt. So. I will be. Um, but there, there's some clinic tape as a pass protector um, from him against UCLA that's really worthwhile. And he is a tough runner. But I do think that when – you know, a guy like Kyle Posey, who covers them for the covers the 49ers, former football player, says, you know, if you look at Trey Sermon and Jordan um, Mason um, and didn't have their the names on the backs of their jersey, they would look like the number one running backs at times in this camp. And I, you know, I've been a big Sermon believer. I'm hoping he gets cut or traded somewhere else because I think that the, um, you know, the the Merrill the um, what's Merrill Streep's rolling Devils Wear Prada. I don't remember her name, but you know that that's that's Kyle Shanahan as a coach with his personnel sometimes. Um, and I think Trey Sermon, if he wound up in Pittsburgh, um, he could be a co running. He wouldn't be a co running back one, but he'd have a much better chance of being able to deliver. And if he wound up on another team that really needed a run back due to injury, he could be a, st- a good starter. Awesome. So. We'll go on to the next one. What running back do you think is currently flying under the radar that has a significant chance to make a big difference for fantasy players in 2022? Other I mean, than Cordero. Yeah, yeah, other than Cordero. <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of guys, but I'll pick two who are kind of backup committee contributors. If an injury happens, it happens. Khalil Herbert, I liked him before. I said he was a high-end Dalvin Cook starter kit before the NFL draft last year, and he he kept some fantasy teams afloat for three to four games against some tough defenses like the Bucks, um, and played well and outplayed Damian Williams. He was the guy who was supposed to be starting, and by the end of the game, it was Herbert all the way. He's going to get more touches this year, and I also think that he, if if Montgomery gets hurt, he can overtake him and shut the door. Um, and then the other guy, Eno Benjamin. I always joke that he was 90 
90 proof LaShawn McCoy in terms of like <laughs> the things that he did well. Um, but the things he didn't do well were pass protection. Um, he had some issues with that and he's gotten so much better at it that now he's kind of the lead back. And I would, I wouldn't rule out Keontae Ingram as the guy that over time they, when they realize what they give them playing time and see what they really have, truly have Ingram. If there's injuries in mass to those two first guys, Connor and Benjamin, maybe Ingram could take off from there, but um, Benjamin is the guy that I would keep an eye on there. 90 proof LaShawn McCoy sounds like you know, a good thing. So uh, final question, as someone who spends far more time than most humans watching film, uh, and when I say far more, like way more, like we we talk, Matt, and like sometimes I'm like, I mean, you're, you're coming off like an eight-hour bender of just straight watching film. So, you know, who are the two to three players in the NFL right now? Does They do not have to just be running backs. They can be. That's up to you. But they just make your, your jaw drop when you watch them. You, you look at them and you're like, wow, even at, even in the NFL, like these guys are just on another level. They're doing things that others can't. Nick Chubb, the way he reads the field and, and the subtleness of his footwork, he can be both subtle and dynamic. Um, just, I think he's incredible. Alvin Kamara is mystical in his ability to break tackles. Um, there is the, the, the small micro movements of his game to be able to adjust is just incredible. And Jamar Chase, top receiver I ever graded um in and when you watch his positioning at the catch point in addition to his versatility as a route runner um the fact that he came in the league and did what he did right away and I know he had good surrounding talent but wow yeah those three guys make my jaw drop it, it is weird I think like because of how great Justin Jefferson also was as a rookie, I think like Chase is like literally top two rookie season ever. And because yeah. we just saw Jefferson, it's almost like, it's, I don't want to call him underrated, and, but. Yeah. And I had, you know, Je Jefferson was my top post-draft rookie um, the year that he came out along with AJ Brown the year before that. And Chase was, Chase was a guy when Chase comes in, he has that hubris to say, Hey, me and Justin Jefferson are our pals, but Justin Jefferson stole all my stuff, you know? <laughs> and I believe it. I believe it too, man. Matt, thank you again for coming on. Fantastic stuff. As always, people can get your rookie scouting portfolio at www.mattwaldmanrsp.com. You know, a true football guy. Go check out Matt's work over at Football Guys Senior Staff Ladder. Anything else you want to get off your chest, Matt? Nah, man. It's just a, it's a pleasure to get a chance to chop it up with you guys and look forward to doing it again someday. Dwayne? I'm, hey. Matt's here. I don't need to say anything else. Like he brings <laughs> all the good stuff, but yeah, just happy to have Matt on. Like obviously Matt and I, you know, we, we, we've chopped up a few pods before always impressed, you know, <laughs> with his knowledge taught me a lot about the game. So glad to have you on Matt. Well, it's mutual. It's a reciprocal relationship for sure. For Matt, for Dwayne, I'm Ian. Thanks so much for tuning in the PFF fantasy football podcast. Until next time, take care. Peace.